If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, so if you'll take that. And when you found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 29, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. During the forty years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals of your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. And now verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we hold your word in our hands. Truth, Lord, the only source of truth in this world, and you have given it to us and revealed yourself to us. We thank you for that. Now, Spirit of God, we pray that you would teach us from this truth this morning so that this time together may truly be transformative for us, that we would become more and more the people that you have called us to be, do more and more the things you've called us to do, and see more and more the glory and the greatness and the beauty of who you are, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And be seated. Well, you know, we've been with the people on the plains of Moab here at Redeemer for over two years now. But the question we have to ask is, why are these people standing on the plains of Moab? Why aren't the grandfathers among them sitting in a rocking chair? Bouncing a grandbaby on their knee on the front porch of the house where they raised their own family. Why do the grandmothers among them not have a a proper double chin, as Tevia wanted for Golda and Fiddler on the Roof? Why isn't this the reality for these people? The reason is because the very popular belief, seeing is believing, is not really true. Or maybe we should say seeing is not always seeing. So look with me again in verse 2 where Moses began speaking. He says to the people, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs, and great wonders. But, see, your, your eyes have seen With your own eyes you saw, but, but what? 
The seeing did not lead to faith because it was not true seeing. And so these people needed to learn then, as you and I must learn from their experience, that there are consequences associated with not really seeing and not really wanting to see. See, the consequence is this. The people should have gone straight from Egypt, straight to the promised land. That's what it should have been like because of the Lord. Imagine being enslaved in Egypt. Slavery must have seemed an insurmountable object object to them. 400 years in slavery. Can you imagine? They must have given up hope of ever being free, but God surmounted. God overcame the obstacle and he set them free. Then there they were in the desert. Can you imagine figuring out which way you should go in a vast desert? But God said, here, here's a cloud to lead you by day. God overcame the obstacle. What about night? How will you travel at night in the desert? How will you be safe from the wild animals in the desert? God said, oh, here is a pillar of fire to lead you. By night, God overcame that obstacle. Certainly when you come to the edge of a sea, it's there before you and you have no boat in which to cross over it and an enemy army is behind you. Surely that is an obstacle in your life. And the Lord said, here, let me part the sea for you so you can cross over on dry ground. But God, but God was there for the people to overcome on their behalf. But Seeing that God overcame the obstacles did not impact their beliefs or their actions when a new obstacle came along. And so they arrived at the promised land and they discovered that there were giants living in the land. The people there were a a mighty people. They were a powerful people. And the Israelites despaired that they would ever be able to defeat these people. And said, so instead of obeying God and taking possession of the land, they said, no, 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 we're afraid. And they refused to obey God. So God sent them back into the desert for 40 years to teach them faith. So here we are on the plains of Moab. And the promised land is visible to the people just across the Jordan River. And so Moses is reprimanding them here in verse 4. Look there. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. And so we say, well, that seems like an odd thing to say. If the Lord did not give these people eyes to see, then, then why blame them for not seeing? Well, here's why. The people should have known that there is more involved in seeing than a physiological process involving the optic nerve and the brain. Whether you see what you see, as you stand on the shore of a sea and watch as it divides before you, or whether you stand in a laboratory and look at a microscope and watch as a cell divides before you, True seeing means looking beyond what is seen for the implications of what we see. 
and why we see what we see and who is behind what we see. And this, of course, takes the grace of God to see more, to see beyond. Elisha, the great prophet of God, prayed for his servant because his servant woke up one morning and he went out of the tent and he looked around and he saw that an enemy army had surrounded the city and that army had come for Elisha and for him. And so he goes back into the tent and he says, oh, my Lord, what shall we do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Wait, Elisha, one, me, two, one, two. What do you mean there's more with us than more with them? And so Elisha simply prays, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So there's more to see than what we see. And so when we read here in verse 4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. We are not to believe that these people are just, you know, helpless victims, poor things that desperately want to understand God, but the mean old God has not allowed them to understand. No. Instead, when we read these verses, we're to understand that these people have not asked for the spiritual eyes to see and spiritual hearts to hear, to, to understand and ears to hear. And so God has granted them their non-request. They are blameworthy because they know that there must be more than what they see. After all, it was an unseen hand that parted the waters of the Red Sea. So why should they not seek from the Lord more than what they saw? It's because of the implications, right? If you pray and you say, Lord, give me spiritual sight. Lord, let me see. And when the Lord answers that prayer and he reveals to us, hey, he is God and we are not God, the implications of that are are weighty. When God reveals himself to you as God, you know in that moment that he has a claim on your life. It means that you've got to give up autonomy self-rule and self-life and self-love, you have to give up. Well, I think, I feel, I want. And you got to be, got to replace it with what God thinks and what God wants and what God wills. And so, yeah, it'd be easier to say, oh, yeah, the Red Sea parted, yeah. Yeah, all, all, all those plagues without ever thinking deeply about those miracles or the implications for your life. What kind of God would bring them about? Why did he bring them about? How do I relate to a God like that? 
What is the more that, mean, that meets the eye? What difference do those events make in my life? Those are the kind of questions that it takes the grace of God for us to understand. And so I believe that the intended response that Moses hopes to elicit from these people as they stand here before them is that they will say this, you mean that there's a kind of seeing that I don't have yet, Lord? Give me that kind of seeing. Lord, you mean there's understanding that I don't have yet that you can give me? Give me that kind of understanding. Lord, there are things to hear that I have not yet heard and you can give me that kind of hearing. Lord, give it to me. I think Moses' desire is that these people rouse themselves from their indifference of not caring about what they don't see or not investing time in the process in order that they may see. Did you ever try to wake somebody up who's a really heavy sleeper? You know, you shake them and you wake them up and they acknowledge your presence, but then they go back to sleep. Honey, honey, wake up, wake up, wake up. The house is on fire. The house is on fire, huh? That's nice, dear. No, honey, 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 wake up. The baby's coming. The baby's coming. Oh, the baby's coming? That's nice, dear. And back to sleep they go. We can be that nonchalant with the truth of the Lord. Oh, Lord, you, you sustain all things with your powerful hand. Oh, that's nice, Lord. Oh, Lord, Jesus, you, you gave your life for my life. That's, that, that's nice, Lord. Lord, I, I can hold your word in my hand. Oh, that's nice, Lord. And back to sleep we go. Back to sleep we go. We acknowledge these truths. We acknowledge the greatness of the Lord. And then we go back to spiritual sleep without processing them and without letting them change our lives. John Calvin says this. Hold it, this thing is coming off my ear. That's not what he said. I just threw that in. John Calvin writes, What Moses relates of the Israelites is unquestionably common to us all. He declares then that they were not induced by the conspicuous glory of God to fear and worship him because he had not given them either mind or ears or eyes. It is true that at man's creation, he had naturally bestowed upon him a mind and ears and eyes, but Moses means that whatever innate light we have is either hidden or lost, so that as far as regards the highest point of wisdom, all our senses lie useless. Therefore, the entire understanding and faculty of reason in which men glory and pique themselves is naught but smoke and darkness. Calvin's point is we can't arrive at this kind of spiritual sight and understanding apart from the grace of the Lord. We've got to seek it from him. And so what does David write in Psalm 119? Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Open my eyes. The Hebrew literally means uncover my eyes or in a broader sense, lay my eyes bare. 
Of course David has the word of God in his hand. Of course, David has a sunlight to read it by day or a lamp to read it by night. And David is literate. He can form all of the words that he sees. And if you ask him to read his verse out loud, he is able to do that. But David wants something beyond that, something more. That the Lord would help him to see the wondrous, unusual, extraordinary truths of his word. And so he goes on in Psalm 119. Writes, incline my heart toward your statues and not toward selfish gain. Incline my eyes away from worthless things. And so David sees this as the work of the Lord. It's the Lord who must give him eyes to see. The Lord who must turn David's heart. And so David understands the sovereignty of God in all things. And yet David also understands man's responsibility. And so in continuing in Psalm 119, he writes, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. And so with God's sovereignty comes our responsibility as well. Decisions that we have to make. And so the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 55, seek the Lord. That's a command. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. The prophet Amos writes, For thus says the Lord, Seek me and live. See, these are pleas to seek the Lord for what only he can give, eyes to see and ears to hear. If he did not intend that we find him, the Lord would not extend this invitation to us, but he does. And so what Moses is trying to do here on the plains of Moab and what I'm trying to do here is to stir us up to seek the Lord, to rejoice that we have a God such as our God who reveals himself to human beings, a God who would allow himself to be known by people like us. I hope to stir us up not to take that for granted, that we wouldn't be found in spiritual lethargy or sleep, That you and I would not presume upon God and say, oh, yeah, God, well, I'll get around to him later. The same God who graciously extends the invitation can withdraw it as well. Don't assume that that interest you have now will always be there in your life. Don't assume that the life that God is giving you in this very minute We'll continue into the next. And please don't reduce God or limit him to our human reason. Please don't think you're doing yourself a favor. Please don't think you're doing anyone else a favor by only having a well-reasoned, rational case for the existence of God. Because when you have that case together, then you can shut the book and say, okay, I am all done now. I have my case for God together. Where's the mystery of God in that? Where's the humility in that that causes us to say, God, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts and your ways are higher than my ways. 
If it doesn't exist, if we limit God to our own reason and evidence of what we see. Faith is the assurance of things we do not see. I love apologetics. I love to defend the faith that we have in Christ. I love reason. God himself invites us, come, let us reason together. Come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. There's the the gospel in the Old Testament. I will wash away your sins, but on the face of it, the gospel is not very reasonable. And so he sings songs like, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It doesn't make sense. It's too good to be true, reasonably speaking, rationally speaking, that Jesus would give his life for us. And so we have to seek from the Lord what is above human reasoning. Would you turn with me in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, written by the Apostle Paul. I would begin reading in in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Is that, that is good news, isn't it? Good news. So just as there were consequences for the people of Israel not seeing and not hearing, listen, there are consequences for us as well. There are consequences for our spiritual health if our eyes don't see and our minds don't understand. There are consequences for what sin can do in our lives and in our relationships. There are consequences for the kingdom. What are the spiritually lethargic really going to accomplish for the Lord? which means there are consequences for our city. There are consequences for our community, 
in which we live, if you and I do not seek the understanding that the Lord can give us and ask him to show us wondrous things, if we don't believe on their behalf that God can do mighty things for them, you and I can sit really high upon our spiritual horse. And we can look down at the Israelites and say, tisk, tisk, silly Israelites, you were denied the promised land because you didn't seek sight that the Lord can give. We better be asking ourselves, what blessings are we being denied? What blessings is our church being denied? What blessing is our city being denied? Because you and I don't seek spiritual sight and understanding that only the Lord can give. We don't know the answer to that question, but the Lord does. So let's finish quickly by looking back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 29 at verse 29. Turn back there. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the word of this law. There are things that we cannot know. There are things that we cannot and will not know. Those things belong to the sovereign God. But there are things that God has revealed to us, and he said, here, these things are yours forever. And those are the things upon which you and I must focus, what God has given to us. And you and I, you know what? We do not presume to know the secret things. We acknowledge that they exist. We know they're real. We know that God exists in ways that we cannot begin to comprehend. But what God does God reveal to us? So many things. But particularly in this passage, he reveals to us that he is sovereign over all things, even what we see, even what we understand. And so I plead for us to act Christianly. Can we act Christianly? Can we act in accordance to what is revealed to us? And everywhere in the Word of God, it's revealed to us that God is faithful. Everywhere it's revealed to us in the Word of God that God is trustworthy. Everywhere it's revealed to us in the Word of God that we can therefore put our trust in Him. Every generation must do that. And allow the secret things to belong to God. You know, in our day, we have ISIS, right? A plague upon us. Martin Luther, in his day, had the Turks and the rapid and the scary advance of the Ottoman Empire. They destroyed Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. And they turned what had been the world's largest cathedral for over a thousand years into a mosque. And they had jihad throughout Europe, watching people converted by by the sword. And their advance was not turned back until the gates of Vienna in 1529. So here's Martin Luther. And not only is he battling the, the, the corruption of the Catholic Church, He was at the same time watching his world being swept away by Islam. And so Luther wrote this. 
It is said that there is no better temporal rule anywhere than among the Turks, who have neither spiritual nor temporal law, but only their Koran. And we must confess that there is no more shameful rule than among us with our spiritual and temporal law, so that there is no estate which lives according to the light of nature, still less according to Holy Scripture. In Martin Luther's day, he looked around and he saw a sleeping church that did not live by the word of God. And so he wrote this in a letter to the Christian nobility, June 1520. It's a prayer. God, give us all a Christian mind, especially to the Christian nobility of the German nation, a right spiritual courage to do the best that can be done for the poor church. Amen. And that's what you and I need this morning, to pray that same prayer that the Lord would give us a Christian mind, informed by the truth that God has revealed to us, that God would give us faith to live by that truth and trust the sovereign God with what is unseen. And praying as Luther prayed. And who did Luther pray for? He prayed for the church, knowing that it's the church and not any one nation. I'll say it again. It's the church and not any one nation that is always in the eye and on the heart of God. What is God doing with his church around the world? And so I'm saying this, that you and I, can do a lot of good for the kingdom of God in the next couple of weeks if you and I will live our lives according to what has been revealed to us. What has not been revealed to us is the future. And here's not what's required of us. And I'm almost finished. If y'all just hang in there, I'm almost done. Here's what's not required of us. It's not required of us to do some convoluted attempt to manipulate the future. What is not required of us who are called to faith is to express fear. Because why? The unseen things belong to who? God. Doesn't matter your opinion of the political landscape at this moment because the political landscape at this moment is nothing but a blip on the radar screen. And it is the secret plan of God, how he will use what's going on now in this country. And I'm not suggesting that you and I don't call a plague a plague. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not like the Egyptians woke up and said, oh, goody, goody, look, honey, all the water has turned to blood. Huh? Oh, goody, goody, honey, the land is covered with frogs. <laughs> honey, I just went out and all our cattle are dead. Isn't that great news? Oh, look, the locusts have stripped all the vegetation out of our land. Hallelujah. No, that was not their response. A plague is a plague, and it's designed to be noticeably noticeably a plague, something not good. But God used the plagues for his purposes, which were good. And so you and I, we like to require faith from everybody but us. We want the Israelites to be people of faith, but not ourselves. We like to ridicule them for being so faithless. Oh, how could they? But listen, this is our moment, okay? This is our moment. We are facing an unknown future.
What is at our gate? We don't know. But why should we give history the opportunity to look back at us and say, why were those Christians so faithless in 2016? Why did they abandon conviction and principle in an effort to bring about an outcome that they, as humans, thought was best? I'm telling you, because I know it to be true from the Word of God, whatever happens politically will be for the strengthening of the church and the spread of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, therefore... You and I should be the most excited of all people saying, Lord, these are crazy times. These are some crazy people. What in the world are you up to and how are you going to get the glory through all this? Because let me just say, if the protection of the government has made the church lethargic, If it's made us feel entitled, then we have to say, well, is a pro-church government ultimately good for the kingdom? If having the love and the favor of everyone has caused us to forget the world and to be self-consumed, then is the protection of the government a good thing? I don't know. The secret things belong to God. But I know this, that you and I must act Christianly. Our words... Our faith, our peace, our hope in Christ can make an enormous difference in the lives of many people who truly believe, who truly believe that we are facing a plague when they look at what is going on. But we, believers in Christ, we have a long history of experience with plagues, don't we? And persecution and how God uses them both in the lives of his people to make us strong, and to advance his kingdom. And so let's just do this. For your sake, and for the sake of the church, and for the sake of all those that God has placed in your life, pray, pray that God will give you eyes to see and a heart to understand the deep things of God and the wondrous beauty of Christ. You can do that. You can pray that prayer. You'll be transformed as God answers. You'll be strengthened. You'll be full of faith and hope and peace, and that will make a difference in the life of everybody around you. Pray that God will give that same spiritual insight to others as you tell them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then just rest Rest and rejoice because the secret things belong to. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that encourages us. Never, Lord, has anyone ever lived who can see the future or know the future. And without exception, the future always calls for faith. The secret things belong to you. Lord, we don't see them. We don't know them. And so in, in faith, we walk into an unknown future. Lord, help us to emanate from our lives and our speech and our actions what we know to be true, that you are a sovereign God and that your plan and your will is good and perfect and well-pleasing. We know this to be true. 
Father, we know that the church is your instrument on this earth for the advance of the kingdom and for spreading what is the best news that has ever been heard in this world. That is that Christ came and Christ died, that sins are forgiven. Such great news. Lord, that's what's at your heart, wherever your church is around the world. So help us to to live by faith in what you've revealed to us. Lord, help us not to fear the future, but to look at it with excitement about what it is that you might do and how the church is going to be changed and awakened and shaken out of its lethargy, Lord, to advance for your glory. That's what we want to see, Lord. And so however you need to bring that about, we trust ourselves to you and to your care, and we will therefore be at peace. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.